This season of the Chefs Manifesto podcast is brought to you by the Crop Trust. With more than 15 years working globally to safeguard our agricultural biodiversity, the Crop Trust has been a strong advocate for greater long-term resilience in our food systems. Through an endowment fund, the Trust is working with partners to secure the most important international, regional and national collections of crop diversity in perpetuity, as well as the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, the world's backup facility for seeds. In short, the Crop Trust's work comes down to one simple vision, ensuring the basis of our food is safeguarded forever. For more information, follow the Crop Trust on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, or visit their website at croptrust.com. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is is life. life. Hello and welcome to episode three of this series of the Chef's Manifesto podcast in collaboration with the Crop Trust. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, a specialist in zero-waste, plant-led climate cuisine and author of the new regenerative cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. Across the world, we drink a mind-blowing 2.25 billion cups of coffee a day. Over 90% of this coffee is produced in the global south mostly South America, while the vast majority is consumed primarily in the global north. The two key coffee species, coffee arabica and coffea canifora, also known as robusta coffee, are under urgent threat worldwide due to climate change, as are the 125 million people who depend on coffee production for their livelihoods. Arabica coffee, which accounts for 70% of global coffee production, is one of the least genetically diverse crop species in the world. This, amongst other factors, makes it particularly vulnerable to our changing climate, with increases in temperature, unreliable rainfall, new pests and diseases. Today we hear from an expert panel of four guests about coffee diversity, about how to save this amazing crop from climate change, and about the cultural significance of coffee in different parts of the world. I'll be talking with Chef Aylin Yazajolo, who owns restaurant Nicole in Istanbul, about Turkish coffee culture and the importance of sourcing coffee sustainably. I'll also be speaking with two experts. Firstly, with Dr. Rolando Serda, a researcher and professor at the Tropical Agricultural Research and Higher Education Centre, Katia. Katia is the only coffee collection globally accessible to coffee breeders via the International Treaty. The other 18 coffee gene banks do not have use and sharing agreements. And secondly, Dr. Sharada Krishnan, Director of Horticulture and Centre for Global Initiatives at Denver Botanic Gardens and a coffee grower with plantations in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica. But first, I'd like to give a warm welcome to Chef Daniel Kaplan. He was born in Bogota, Colombia. Chef Daniel graduated from the Culinary Institute of America in 1996, going on to work at the New York Palace and the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Daniel returned south where he worked in Chile at the Hotel Termas de Coquenas near Santiago, then on to Colombia. 
There he worked with well-respected chefs like Harry Sasson, as well as running his own restaurants such as 29 Cocina y Bar, which was voted as one of the finalists for the Five Star Diamond Award by the American Academy of Hospitality Sciences. At present, Chef Daniel works as one of the executive chefs for Takami Hospitality Group, running the kitchens for two of its restaurants. The Ugly American and La Fama Barbecue. Chef Daniel Kaplan, welcome to the podcast. Well, Tom, thank you very much for having me. It's it's quite an honor. It's my first podcast, so I'm quite excited. The privilege is ours. So I understand that you have been super active spreading the word about the Chef's Manifesto down in Colombia. Can you tell us about what you've been up to or if you've got any plans brewing? Absolutely. Um, well, I, I joined the manifesto about four months ago, and I met other people who are also in the manifesto, like Natalia. And I joined with another friend. He's not a chef. He's more on the production side, Mitchell. And we've been able to form a Chef's Manifesto Columbia group with about um, eight to ten chefs. We're starting to get involved. We've done a couple webinars, and the first one was Food Waste. Today, we're doing the second webinar, which Natalia is actually leading, which is about hunger. Food Bank Director in Colombia is going to be giving a little speech, a little talk about it. And next week, we're doing another one, which is going to be about sustainable cattle raising. That's so active. And it sounds like these are webinars I'd like to join. Are they in Spanish? They're in Spanish. And of course, we'll, we'll share the link Cool. That's great. I mean, it's brilliant to see the Chef's Manifesto spreading across the world and being so active in different languages. Really inspiring. Okay, so coffee. Most people think of coffee as their daily morning drink. Can you tell us as a chef who lives and works in a country that produces the third total highest amount of coffee beans in the world, what coffee means to Colombians? Well, coffee is our adrenaline. <laughs> it's what gets it gets us going in the morning. It's what we're known for. I mean, we do produce a lot of other things, but um, there's been a lot of great publicity done on our coffee. Juan Valdez, uh, I'm sure you've probably seen him on commercials, the guy with his donkey going up the mountain picking coffee. He's actually a real character. We try to use it a lot in our cuisine. Personally, I drink it every day, every morning. I'm not the typical coffee drinker that can have five or six cups a day. I'm a little bit more moderate with it. But if I do drink a cup of coffee, it has to be absolutely perfect. I agree with that sentiment, kind of less but better almost. I understand you've been working really hard to improve the sustainability of your restaurants. In simple terms, what in your experience makes coffee sustainable? With my restaurant group, I'm an executive chef of the restaurant group, uh, as well as two or three other executive chefs. As far as coffee goes, the main thing that we look in sustainability, and that's where we're at right now, is more of a social issue, uh, make, making sure that the pickers are the ones who are getting paid properly, that a good percentage of the money is going to them. Um, like you say, we, we export a lot of coffee, but uh, what was happening in the past is we were buying it from a third party and the coffee growers were not getting a fair percentage whatsoever. And this causes a lot of problems because the young kids are not, they want to go into the city, they want to make more money. It's really a matter of giving them a fair pay for their work. I mean, it's backbreaking work, so you have to go underneath, it's hot weather. So that's what we look for the most. As far as ecological sustainability, Colombia is, is a country that's full of fresh water. So we're still using water to clean our coffee. It's not 
great. There's systems that are starting to be put in where we don't use water to wash the beans, but we're still way behind on that. I know in other countries, in Africa, they started doing it. I think in Guatemala as well. Colombia is just starting with that. But uh, the main thing is the social part. The companies we work with, they make sure that the coffee growers get at least twice the minimum salary. So they have enough money to have some commodities, but also to reinvest into their farm. We look for small growers or we look for companies who work with the small growers as well. That's really interesting, actually. I've got the Chef's Manifesto action plan here. Are eight points and it's just occurring to me how coffee especially when you live where coffee is grown locally really taps into all eight of the chef's manifesto action points ingredients that need to be grown with respect for the earth and the oceans and that really importantly need to protect biodiversity as you mentioned very importantly it must invest in livelihoods value natural resources it's a focus on plant-based ingredients it's education and it's nutritious food as well and so spurring off that i wanted to chat a little bit about valuing natural resources and protecting biodiversity because land use change mainly deforestation is one of the main causes of biodiversity loss and climate change food production of coffee and many other things is often a cause of deforestation can you tell us a little about how you source sustainable ingredients whilst avoiding produce that may have led to deforestation well coffee is one of the ingredients but really the main thing or the main culprit or the one that gets the blame for deforestation is cattle raising. The restaurants I manage are beef and pork oriented. One's a barbecue, the other one's an American style tavern. We try to source our beef from places that haven't suffered from deforestation. It's something that's been happening more and more for the last five years. We can't say that it's 100% sustainable yet, but at least we guarantee that it hasn't gone through deforestation in at least the last 10 years. We can't go back further because if not, we just wouldn't have any beef. And unfortunately, because of this deforestation, all the biodiversity is suffering. So the team at the Chef's Manifesto tell me that as a response to the pandemic, you started a website connecting your producers with your diners. Has this helped your producers continue to thrive? And what's the website? I'm sure our listeners would love to check it out. Sure, of course. It's called Despensa Takami. Despensa in English means pantry. So they are our pantry. It was a project that we had started working on and we're planning on building maybe for next year or in two years. But when the pandemic started, all the three-year planning had to be done in about three weeks. <laughs> it was a way for us to help our purveyors stay in contact with customers, but also a way for our customers to buy produce that we buy for our restaurants. So we know and they know it's got exceptional quality. It's what I would use in my restaurant. If it's not high quality, I'm not going to use it. So it has helped our purveyors. We have a sustainability department within the restaurant group, and they go and check every single one of these purveyors and make sure they're at least fulfilling two or three or four of the aspects that we need them to fulfill. It can't be 100%, but if at least they're paying their employees well, and in Colombia, it's important that we pay our employees all their legal benefits. That's how far behind we had been before and that for us is part of livelihood sustainability like you said protecting the waterways um, i already told you a little bit about the beef we've worked a lot with the fishermen so we buy directly and do you have any of your coffee producers on the website yet yes we have cafe devotion where they're the ones we actually use in the restaurant they protect their farmers 
then they use small farmers. They actually have even a cafe in Brooklyn now. It's called Devotion. And we've also incorporated a few other coffees, Mesa de los Santos, which is from the northern region of the country. So we try to get from different regions, high altitude, low altitude, changes the acidity, changes the bitterness of the coffee. There are a few coffees besides the one we use in the restaurant that you can find. So before we go, I just wanted to know, do you cook with coffee? Is it in any of the dishes? I mean, let's keep this chefy. I'd love to get a recipe idea of you. Barbecue and coffee go really well together. You can use it to dry rub your brisket. You can put fresh coffee into your barbecue sauce. You can even inject your, your brisket with a little bit of coffee if you're into injecting. We do a chocolate cake at the restaurant. And we finish it with a little bit of infusion that we spray on the cake before we serve it that's got coffee in it to give it a little bit of bitterness and a little bit of sponginess and creaminess and make it a little bit moister for the cake. Our head bartender was telling me in England, there is a distillery, I guess, or a, maybe you've heard of it. They're called Discarded. Oh, I haven't. They're making liquors out of different waste products. And one of them is they're using the cherry from the coffee. It gets thrown out. And that's one thing that we have to work with. And they're making dry vermouth. I'm going to send you all that info as well. Yeah. And listeners will put that below. Thanks for coming on the show. It was a really inspiring conversation. I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners did too. And let's stay in touch. Absolutely. And please count on me anything you need. I think the job and the, the work that you guys do with the manifesto is, is actually what inspired me to do what I'm doing now. The last four months have been educational for me. I've been getting involved more than I had been before. I just want to keep helping and keep being a big part of this great movement. Well, you're inspiring me. I'm sure you'll inspire our listeners too. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, Tom. Our next guest is Turkish chef Aylin Yazicolo, who trained at Le Cordon Bleu and worked at Michelin-starred restaurants in Paris, Belgium and Barcelona for 10 years before opening her own restaurant, Nicole, in Istanbul, which was recently awarded Best Restaurant in Turkey by La List 2019. Chef Aylin showcases Turkish ingredients using fresh techniques at Nicole, as well as championing gender equality and equal opportunity. She wants to empower young women to cook and ensure that there is equal opportunity for the next generation in the culinary field. Chef Aylin Yazicolo, welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Hi. It's a real pleasure to have you on to speak with us. Whereabouts are you right now? I'm at home in Istanbul because uh, the restaurant is closed, although we're doing some uh, packaging service, VIP catering at home. Okay, well, sorry to hear that. Hopefully you'll be open again soon, but it sounds like you're being very inventive and creating ways around it. So today we're discussing coffee. Most people think of coffee as their daily morning drink. Can you tell us what coffee means to the food culture of Turkey? Because I know it's very important. Oh, it is so important because obviously it is uh, your first drink in the morning. Although uh, tea in the, the last 50 years uh, possibly replaced it for the morning uh, session. But coffee just stays with us during the whole day. 
And uh, it's not just your kickoff, uh, so to speak, but also has a great uh, ceremonial side to it because you go to someone's house, it's the first thing that you are offered. Nobody's waiting for the end of the meet, for instance. You go there for any uh, particular purpose and you're offered the coffee, a funeral, a birth, whatever is uh, the occasion. First thing is, Would you like, well, not a cup of coffee, but the small espresso cups that we have. And uh, you are also asked how you like your coffee. Your, your sugar, if you prefer it with sugar, it comes uh, already mixed. So yeah, it's quite something like a drink for us. I haven't been to Turkey yet, unfortunately, but do you make coffee in the same way as you might do in, in the UK or in Europe? <laughs> Not at all. When I was studying in England, I used to bring my Turkish coffee with me and uh, love to offer it to roommates, etc. Apart from the Greek and Cypriot friends, nobody really liked it because what we do, we put the water first, uh, prefer it with sugar, you add your sugar, and then you add your coffee and without stirring it, leave the water boil. And then you stir it. We have a similar criteria for the espresso. You need to have a crema on top of your coffee. Otherwise, it's not well done. So you pour it twice. You pour once. You bring it back to boil and then you pour it again. Obviously, you shouldn't uh, sip it right away. You need to let it rest for a minute or so because you have the old uh, grind coffee inside your coffee that you drink, which is great news actually because you first drink your coffee and then it's always best to share your coffee. You, you have a friend with you and then you turn your cup of coffee uh, upside down. You let it cool. And then you read, it's like a fortune teller, you read the coffee stain inside the coffee cup to tell you news about the future, for instance. Oh, wow. It sounds like it really is an important part of your food culture. We drink more than 2.25 billion cups of coffee a day in the world. And most of that is coffee Arabica, which is actually a very vulnerable species to climate change. So sustainability in coffee are very, very important. What do you think makes a cup of coffee sustainable? Turkey is not a coffee-producing country to start with. So being a great consumer country without producing it poses a big question. Depending on the economic level of people, there are certain parts of the society that would prefer knowing how and where the coffee is sourced. For some other, unfortunately, the price is the main concern. So I don't know how, exactly how to answer your question because it's hard to sometimes convince people that the coffee might be less, so to speak, expensive at that particular moment for them. But it will be so much more expensive in the very near future. Istanbul is a, a metropolitan and It's much easier to convert people to certain things, to change their uh, consumption patterns. But for the rest of the country, I'm not quite sure. Price is a really important factor. Sustainable food has to be affordable. Yes. So I'd be really interested to know that you've trained as a sociologist. How has this helped with your perspective in the kitchen? The way I do everything. 
the way I look at how we produce and how we consume, my concerns when I try to come up with a new menu or everything is based on this particular discipline that you're trained with. You have an understanding of how things work. You, you can see the big picture. So, for instance, as a chef, my main concern should be the cost of uh, whatever I cook. I'm capable of saying not the immediate cost, but what it means for the new generation. So I think it's much easier for me to analyze. And I, I hate being called a female chef. A chef is a chef, just like a doctor is a doctor and all the rest. But at the same time, there are gender differences. So at every uh, level of being in the kitchen, I'm forced to see things in a different perspective and uh, try to understand, also come up with, well, solutions would be a huge word, but at least some suggestions. So before we go, would you mind telling us a little bit about your restaurant and how you've been looking to source sustainable coffee and other produce? As I said, coffee is slightly uh, difficult because our, so to speak, philosophy is to be able to source locally. Coffee and chocolate, that's impossible. Unfortunately, I cannot ban either of them. This year, I've decided, okay, I'm going back to my roots. My grandmother is from Southwest uh, City, one of the largest, Izmir. And this is the, you know, Aegean coast. And I want to do the wild herbs. I want to do less red meat and more fish, etc. Particularly, if it is about proteins, fish, yet if uh, possible, less of any of this, but more of vegetables and legumes and things. But comes a moment you think, okay, but I need to put uh, chocolate and uh, serve coffee. So how am I going to not contradict myself to start with? There's one chocolate dessert and I call the chef's caprice because I have to have my chocolate. For the coffee, I try to support those who I know bring organic produce and those who source from places that uh, fit a particular criteria. Because people, when they come to a luxurious restaurant, I wouldn't call ourselves a luxury restaurant, but at the same time, it's a gastronomic restaurant, a fine dining, as they call it. So people would love to have more or less what they want. It's a particular occasion for them, for instance. But we try to explain to them it's not that what you they can afford now but it's about what they won't be able to afford uh, in the future so there shouldn't be so many options sometimes and they should be content with what's on offer given that it's always good quality anyway rather than looking for too many options they should be concerned more about not always just their, as I call it, caprice, but also about what the future holds for us. Aylan, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to chat to you. Good luck with everything and hopefully we'll have you on the show again sometime soon. Thank you very much. Rolando Serda is an agronomist engineer with a master's degree in ecological agriculture and agroforestry, and a PhD in agronomic sciences. Dr. Serda is a researcher and professor at Catier and a specialist in agroforestry systems with perennial crops. In recent years, he coordinated studies for the identification, evaluation, 
prioritization and promotion of climate smart agriculture practices for home gardens, agroforestry systems, including coffee, basic grains and pastures. Dr. Serda has several scientific publications and technical publications for technicians and farmers. Rolando Serda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you. The pleasure is all ours, and it's amazing that we'll be able to connect you with all the chef listeners around the world. I imagine, yeah. So today's episode is all about coffee, and I would therefore like to start off by asking what, in your experience, makes a cup of coffee sustainable? This is a good question, because for making this cup of coffee sustainable in time, we need a combined efforts of several actors, no? Uh, which includes coffee farmers and their families, of course, technicians and research centers in, in the coffee countries, governments and their institutes that collaborate with these coffee growing areas, and of course also the buyers, the industries, and the consumers. No, each of these actors uh, has an important role. Farmers, of course as the main role by producing our coffee that we enjoy every morning. Technicians and research centers or, or, or research extension services provide support to guide farmers to, to produce a coffee constantly. Governments and institutes make their effort also to collaborate with some maybe funds or other kind of help aided to farmers and industries, buyers also put this part by buying the, the coffee at the end no? and, and consumers by encouraging all of this chain to pay fair prices at the end for farmers. So if we combine all of these things, we will have coffee, I hope, forever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So not just about the farm being sustainable it's about the whole food chain all the way to the consumer or the chef or the procurer of those ingredients do you mind telling us about the role of katia especially when it comes to diversity in the world of coffee yes of course katia is a research center located in costa rica central america and here we have one of the main coffee germ plants collection in in the world talking about the the number of accessions or, or varieties that we have here uh, we are in the fourth place in the world but we have the most important collection in latin america which is very important. We have like 2,000 varieties or accessions of coffee, and among them, approximately 800 are wild coffee genotypes, which is important because there is where we can find new interesting characteristics for chefs and for consumers. And the other thousands of varieties are also important and, and has potential for the consumers, but also very important for farmers, because this is our treasure, no? because based on this treasure, we can do breeding in coffee by combining different varieties and, and, and to develop new materials that, for instance, must have resistance to pests and diseases. And of course, also in the current context, varieties which can support and produce well in climate change context, for instance. So that is, uh, we believe, a highly important role of Katia in the world of coffee by having these, these collections. But we also provide uh, assistance and, and our ideas 
to develop agroforestry systems, to grow coffee no, not in monocultures, but in systems uh, like uh, somehow similar to forests. Coffee combined with timber trees, fruit trees, bananas, so it's very nice, very interesting. So we combine this provision of materials, for instance, geisha is a variety that we have here in Katia, and, and we promoted this variety and, and had a, a very success uh, history. And we also developed hybrids of coffee and other types of varieties like geisha, which is very well known by its quality and, and we provide this but we also encourage uh, agroforestry systems and we provide um, uh, assistance and training to farmers students and technicians to try to promote this kind of systems which combined with good varieties will make more sustainable the world of coffee for farmers and up to consumers Brilliant. And I mean, it's fascinating that you are focusing on sustainable farming methods such as agroforestry. But I'm really interested to know about the geisha variety. Why has that become successful? Yes, this is a very interesting example of the importance of conserving a huge number of varieties. Geisha was introduced to our collection more than 40 years ago. Geisha comes from Ethiopia, no? And it was in our collection. We were maintaining the, the plants of this variety. And in some moment, uh, we discovered that this geisha has interesting qualities for a cup of coffee. So we started to explore more about this variety, how to produce this variety. And then we exported this variety to Panama, to some partners of us. And there, this variety found the agroecological condition and was the perfect place. And so they discovered that producing this coffee can have a good production if we manage this variety well and can produce, as you know, high prices, which at the end is a benefit for coffee farmers. So for Katia, is the main mission you know, to, to improve the livelihoods of smallholder farmers. And through this kind of examples, we can achieve that. As I mentioned, it's a good example because by conserving a, a lot of varieties that we have here, in any moment we can discover another variety which can be successful and for benefit for farmers and for consumers, you know, coffee lovers. Absolutely. I mean, it's clear chefs in particular, on the lookout for flavour. They want the best coffee they can possibly serve. What would be your message to chefs to encourage them to engage in a diverse sourcing, to stimulate the diverse production you're talking about? I think that the role of chefs is very important and can be very important, more important even if you are incentivated to look for more flavors, new flavors that you are interested in. We know that, for instance, many consumers are not looking only for coffee, coffee, but they want to, to feel another flavors, a coffee with floral, uh, floral smells or fruit flavors, etc. So if chefs are interested in this and they say, for instance, to some cooperative of coffee or to some country which produce coffee and its institutes of coffee. Okay, look, we would like to have a coffee variety with flavor characteristics and, and fruit aromas, for instance. No? So in that moment, we start to look for these new kind of materials uh, with the promising that in the future can have success and all of the actors in the coffee chain can, be, can have benefits from that. I mean, it's interesting because the chef or the person buying the coffee for their restaurant has a responsibility to the smallholder coffee farmers. And what I'd love to know from you is how 
chefs can really support those farmers in the best possible way? Yes, one way is the one that I they mentioned, you know, that they look for new flavors and encourage more work and more benefits for farmers. But also if chefs look for another products, not only the traditional cup of coffee, but for instance, if chefs try to encourage the generation of liquors based on, on beers made of, uh, of coffee, desserts, creams, or these kind of things. So this will encourage more production of coffee, more use of coffee, not only for cups of coffee, but for more products. In that way, I think chefs directly or indirectly uh, will collaborate more uh, for the sustainability of our coffee farmers in the world. And what would happen if chefs don't support this kind of wider variety of coffee plants through their procurement? Well, I think chefs are part of all of this chain that I mentioned at the beginning of this, of this podcast. No? So if one part of this chain does not contribute, there is always a risk to reduce the production of coffee worldwide because if chefs for instance, lost their interest in coffee, less coffee is going to be bought for farmers and from their cooperatives. So, so my message is that chefs, please continue encouraging the consumption of coffee and other products made of coffee. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time today, Rolando. Really inspiring. Yes. I would like to say something else, if you permit me. This contribution of chefs to encourage more coffee production in the world uh, has to be in hand with the contribution of other actors in, in this coffee chain. You know? And if we lose this interest in coffee, for instance, uh, we don't support the maintenance of coffee collections in the world, there is a clear risk for the coffee production. Uh, because uh, as far as I know, all the coffee germ plants collection in the world are maintained by coffee centers like, like Katje. And most of the funds that we need to maintain these collections is difficult to find every year. So there are studies that encourage and highlight the importance to support this coffee collection because this is a treasure. It's well, it's well known that in the future, climate change will cause that coffee is not going to be produced in some areas. So farmers can abandon the coffee and in that way we can lose some varieties, wild varieties or commercial varieties. But if we maintain our collections, we can put these varieties in, in a coffee collection to conserve these varieties. So that is why we need the support of all the actors to maintain this diversity of coffee in collections. So important. Protecting biodiversity, essentially. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Rolando. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. And uh, have a nice day. Dr. Sharada Krishnan is Director of Horticulture at the Centre for Global Initiatives at Denver Botanic Gardens. She has a Master of Science degree in horticulture from Colorado State University, where her doctorate research focused on the conservation genetics of wild coffee in Madagascar. Sharada was involved in developing the global strategy for the conservation of coffee genetic resources in collaboration with the Global Crop Diversity Trust and World Coffee Research. The main goal of the strategy is to ensure the conservation and use of coffee 
genetic resources for a positive, sustainable future of the crop and for those dependent on coffee for a livelihood. As well as being a globally renowned expert on coffee genetic resources, Sharada owns coffee plantations in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica, where she is looking at ways to improve sustainable coffee production. Dr. Sharada Krishnan, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to get the chance to chat with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Please, can you start by telling us about your work and specific focus with the genetic diversity of coffee? Yeah, my research work has focused on studying the genetic diversity of wild coffee species, especially coffee in Madagascar and looking at the conservation practices. So one of the problems with coffee is coffee cannot be conserved as seeds for the long term, like in the global seed vault operated by the Crop Trust. Uh, so hence, they have to be preserved as living plants in field collections, like a botanic garden in a field collection. And these field collections are known as field gene banks. And so unfortunately, storing coffee genetic resources in the fields is very costly and makes it highly vulnerable to many of the threats associated with climate and pests and diseases resulting in loss of plants. So to understand the threats uh, that are faced by coffee collections held in coffee gene banks around the world, I was involved in a project in collaboration with uh, the Crop Trust and World Coffee Research to develop the global conservation strategy for coffee genetic resources. So the whole purpose of the strategy is to ensure that conservation and use of uh, the coffee genetic resources for a sustainable and positive future of the crop and those who are dependent on the crop for a livelihood. Okay, wow. I, I wasn't aware that you couldn't conserve seeds for coffee plants. And so does that mean that they need to be grown in the country of origin or at these kind of field banks? I mean, Arabica and Robusta coffee are grown all over the world. It has to be climates that are conducive for growing coffee. So a lot of the coffee producing countries are the ones who are conserving the coffee genetic resources in field gene banks. And so I understand there isn't a huge diversity of coffee being grown. Is it something like 95% is Arabica or something like that? I mean, the two cultivated coffee are Coffea Arabica, which is the Arabica coffee, and Coffea canifora, which is the uh, Robusta coffee. But there are 124 species of coffee, wild coffee in the world distributed in Africa, Madagascar, Mauritius, Comoros, and Re the Indian Ocean Islands, uh, Comoros and Reunion, and South and Southeast Asia. And there is one species in Australia. So the 124 species, but a lot of them are not cultivated because they're not very good tasting, but they are the genetic resources that needs to be preserved too, because for the future, you never know where you need to turn for genes that offers disease or pest resistance, drought tolerance, any of those climate change, we need to make sure that we build resilience to climate change in our cultivated coffee. Okay, so even if they don't taste good, they might have genetic traits that could be bred into better tasting varieties in order to make them more climate resilient. Yes, exactly. Okay, so one question we like to ask our guests is what do you feel makes a cup of coffee sustainable? It's obviously an oversimplification, but it'd be really nice to hear from you as such an expert and a farmer, kind of your, your advice. Sure. Uh, you know, the coffee supply chain, it is such a complex supply chain for coffee. And so you can't just, the sustainable cup of coffee cannot be defined as just one factor. So from producer to the consumer, there are sustainable practices that can be applied 
to every segment of the supply chain. So if you look at the farm level, I mean, if you're taking environmental, social, and economic factors into consideration, some of the main questions to ask are, are the farming practices that are utilized by the farmer sustainable without causing minimal or no damage to the environment? So are we growing coffee under shade so that preserves biodiversity in the farm? There is so much waste once you process the coffee. How are the wastes handled? Understanding that. And what are some of the soil erosion measures? Because coffee, as you know, are grown in steep hills in many regions of the world. What kind of soil erosion measures are implemented? So those all add to the sustainability on the farm. And on the social side, what are the labor practices? Are child labor being employed? And then on the economic side, are the farmers earning a fair living wage through the cultivation so that they can sustain their families? So these are all at the farm level, some of the things to look for. And then there are many certification systems in coffee. But the question to ask is, is the premium the paid to the farmers, the promised premium, does that compensate for the certification cost that they have to endure? And then at the exporter roaster level, some of the things to consider are, what is the price paid to the farmer? And does the roaster do direct trade with the farmer? So that way, some of the middlemen and those costs are avoided. So the farmer gets the direct benefit. And then the farmer cooperatives too. And then transportation, what is the carbon footprint? But coffee has to transport to long distances because a lot of our consuming countries are not coffee producing countries. So transportation, how is it transported? And then at a consumer level, looking at how am I brewing my coffee? Am I creating waste from the coffee, what type of waste am I composting? The waste, are you using it for other purposes? And also the method, uh, like if you're using those single serve things that you're throwing away, which goes to the landfill, that is another consideration. So yeah, so towards the entire supply chain, you can look at various factors that can impact sustainability. Amazing. I mean, it's vast really, isn't it? It's, where does one start in a restaurant and or cafe? I imagine you're right, like working backwards, looking at your own waste, making sure there's not single-use plastics and things going straight into landfill. And coffee grounds or used coffee grounds are actually kind of nutritious in terms of their ability to help the fertility of compost and things like that as well, aren't they? Yeah, you can add them to the compost, yes. You're a leading expert, clearly, but you're also a coffee grower with farms in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica. I'd love to know if climate change has affected you there as a grower. Yes, as a grower, every year when the summer comes, I'm always worried about the drought. And the past few years, we have always had severe drought in our region, coffee growing regions of Jamaica. The thing is, uh, Brazil and places like that, where, where it's much flatter, where the coffee is grown, it's easier to have an irrigation system. Whereas in steep slopes, it's harder to have an irrigation system. So we have rain-fed cultivation and uh, no irrigation system. So every year when the drought hits, we are constantly waiting, is it going to rain today? Is it going to rain today? And with a drought, not only are you losing your yield, but whatever coffee is there, the quality also can go down. So what happens is because of the heat, the coffee ripens much faster. So the more the berry stays there and ripens slowly in cool temperatures, that's when the taste of the coffee also becomes nuanced. I'm always worried now more and more by August, we are starting to harvest where it used to be October, November. So December, January, February is a better time to harvest. 
So our harvest goes from August, September all the way to March. And also with the hurricanes, the strengths and the intensity of the hurricanes intensifying, that is another thing to worry. And I am always worried, when is the next big hurricane going to hit Jamaica? And we've been lucky the past few years, all the hurricanes uh, have avoided Jamaica, which has been great. But I'm always, every hurricane season, I'm worried when is the next hurricane going to come? Because that can uproot all the trees, which can be devastating to farmers. You're, you're totally at the whim of nature, aren't you, as a farmer? And it sounds like things are shifting. I mean, that's a huge change in your harvest period. Mm-hmm. But hopefully it's all holding strong. Climate change also leads to higher incidence of pests and diseases too. So where coffee berry borer used to be in lower altitudes, now they're moving up to higher altitudes because it's getting warmer and more conducive for them. What's the coffee borer? Coffee berry borer, it's a beetle. The berries are just developing as soon as the flower is fertilized and the berries are developing, they bore a hole and the mother beetle lays her eggs in it. And then those beetles, the larvae start eating the coffee beans inside. So your whole harvest, I mean, anything that's infected with a coffee berry borer, you can't harvest or use it. Oh, wow. Brings a lot of loss to farmers, yeah. So the next question is really important. Chefs have a role to play in supporting and protecting smallholder coffee farmers. Clearly, what choices can we make as chefs to help create a better future for coffee? I would say engaging directly with farmers, what we call direct trade. So coffee, it's like wine, what we call terroir. So from one place to another, if it's the same variety of coffee, what you can grow in Jamaica may be different from what you go in Costa Rica. It would taste different. I would encourage chefs to try all the different regions and tasting the different flavors that come from the different regions and also doing direct trade with farmer and getting to know the farmer so you can add a human element to this culinary aspect of your storytelling. So that way you can tell the story of the farmer. And also another great way to be involved is by supporting women growers. So there is the organization, International Women's Coffee Alliance, and they are a wonderful nonprofit organization promoting women coffee growers. And there are many local chapters in coffee producing countries. And so they put out a semi-annual coffee availability list So you can look at the women producer and then contact the woman producer directly and get coffee from them. Wow, what brilliant advice and what an amazing conversation. I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners will have too. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Lovely to meet you too. And thank you. Thanks to the Chef's Manifesto and to all the chefs for the work you do and for having me to talk about coffee, which I'm so passionate about today. Thanks. This season of the Chef's Manifesto is a call to action to, in the face of climate change, encourage biodiversity where possible, to source sustainably, support livelihoods of smallholder farmers, and in many other ways, work together towards achieving the sustainable development goals and good food for all. On behalf of the Chef's Manifesto team, our guests and the Crop Trust, our partner for this series, thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. I've been your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Please subscribe, rate and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable to us and your participation really helps boost our reach. We want to talk to and engage with as many chefs as we can around the world to talk sustainability and strengthen our global movement of chefs at the forefront of change.
In our next episode, Chef Lorna Marseco will be meeting chefs and experts to discuss the super nutritious sweet potato. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduced waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. A celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible, accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs> Get involved. <laughs>